Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Jen, and with me tonight are Mark. Hello, everyone. And Bob. I live. <laughs> <laughs> Just barely, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this episode... We chose The King of Elfland's Daughter, a classic by Lord Dunsany. So the Keepers are here to uh, bring you this lovely fantasy. Mark, tell us something about it. All right. Tonight, The King of Elfland's Daughter. The Lord of Errol is told by the Parliament of his people that they want to be ruled by a magic lord. Obeying immemorial custom, the Lord sends his son Alveric to fetch the King of Elfland's Daughter, Lyrazel, to be his bride. He makes his way to Elfland, where time passes at a rate far slower than the real world, and wins her. They return to Errol to have a son, but in the manner of fairy brides of folklore, she fits uneasily with his people. She returns to the waiting arms of her father in Elfland, and her lovesick husband goes searching for her, abandoning the kingdom of Errol and wandering in a now hopeless quest. However, Lyrazel becomes lonesome for her mortal husband and son. Seeing that she is unhappy, the king of Elfland uses a powerful magic to engulf the land of Errol. Errol is transformed into a part of Elfland, and Lyrazel and her loved ones are reunited forever in an eternal, enchanted world. This story is recognized as one of the most influential and acclaimed works in all the fantasy literature, and particularly formative of the subgenres of fairy tale fantasy and high fantasy. What do you guys think? <laughs> when you read this, you can see that so many other authors draw their roots from the works of Dunsany. Every fantasy city is a reflection of Lankmar. It's almost like every high fantasy is a reflection of the King of Elfland's daughter. That's a really good way of putting it, yeah. It even says in the preface that it takes place in England, at least in the beginning. So it's a very nice little foray from real life into this fantasy. Although, kind of if I read the phrase, the fields we know, one more time, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, it, it was it was good. It was very flowery. Okay, was come good. on. He was more than just a little bit of a character. I mean, Edward John Morton Drax Plunkett, the 18th Baron of Dunsany, who wrote everything in a single draft for publication. He never rewrote or edited anything. That explains a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he, he only wrote with with quills that he fashioned himself, and while Honorable. writing, his habit was to sit on a crumpled hat. 
<laughs> what now? Just think about that for a second. Yeah, when he was writing, he had a crumpled up old hat that he sat on. Well, I think the sitting would, that have, was... would have caused the crumpling. and then he, he just... Well, but, but at least the first time. But after that, it was pre-crumpled. Uh, that a second... Was it superstition or was it just a comfy cushion? I don't know. It is described as an idiosyncrasy. <laughs> Uh, well, but yeah. on the other hand, he was a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, an honorary member of the Institut Historique et Heraldique de France. So he was very well thought of with his works. He wrote a lot of plays. He wrote pieces for radio. But yeah, it's flowery and a little strange. But it comes from a period when the English language was expansive. It's like reading the letters home from a Civil War soldier as opposed to reading letters and emails today. The language use was much broader. So it takes a bit more effort to read it, but it's not just a quick piece of fluff either. We've touched on that before in previous works as well, of this, especially this time period. Abraham Merritt comes to mind and Lovecraft, Lo- Lovecraft obviously, yeah. is, you know, they're really another big sort of echo of this, but that language. Well, the, the single draft does explain the stream of consciousness style that this is written in. It, it is now referred to as a sweeping grandeur. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, like reading Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. Uh, yeah, Another I, contemporary, uh, actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It does have that blatant first-person point of view, but it's when he's describing, once again, those fields we know, and I tell you this, and there are references to Tennyson. There's history lectures in there. It's almost like the narrator is representing, you know, obviously the, the people of the world, the people we know, you know, in the other kind of corollary to the fields we know, and bringing in references to history, but they've been exposed to sort of this beauty, this otherworldly beauty that is Elfland. And it's a real thing, even though they necessarily wouldn't have touched it themselves. They've been exposed to it through these stories. Well, I'm thinking of the history lesson aspect. In some ways, I almost felt like there was some commentary on civics. Sandy was was born in London, but he was a member of the Irish peerage. And when I read, but we who see not follow the ancient custom and do what our people in their parliament say, I was like, oh, is this is this commentary on on the British government uh, from the Irish perspective with the House of Lords and the House of Cods? I was like, you know, I I love that aspect of it, though, because it's almost fairy tale in a modern sense. The Lords are bringing this on themselves to a certain extent, but it's it's told in a, a kind of very current approach the people the lands have requested us of their lord and yes their lord has to obey them despite what may be the consequences despite of his better judgment. exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> despite him knowing better yeah. well you know we're doomed now but <laughs> you asked for it so <sighs> uh, i really loved there was a, there was a phrase and when i read it, it just two words it was so evocative and that was weary magic. Mm. I loved it. To, it, to me, the, the whole concept of magic that is so ancient that its potency has been sapped away by the passage of ages, even if in Elfland they may or may not be experienced in any sort of linear fashion, that it's weary, that it's tired, worn out, or even stagnant. That, to me, that's something that I want to use. That was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> ah, gosh, gosh, gosh. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of asked for this one. Oh, okay, I did ask for this one. I, I I wanted something more of a high fantasy as opposed to all of the post-apocalyptic pieces we've been going over recently. And the very first chapter sucked me in where runes are uttered as well as written. Whoa. Okay, hold on. This kind of changes the paradigm a little bit. 
most powerful spells are runes, and the creation of the sword was just, yeah, okay, I, I need more, come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that was what spellbound me was the narration of the, the witch and the way the sword was created. I, that's when I knew that this was a completely different sort of setting and book. You know, Dunsany is one of those high fantasy, high vocabulary, you know, florid sort of prose, but it's so well used in certain scenes that it's just very elegant. And it calls so much attention to the detail and the magic of that process that that's probably the best scene in the book for me is just the fact that he's going out and gathering thunderbolts to go and make the sword, you know, the the witch is turning into this sort of disenchanting sword for uh, elf magic. It's, it's really neat. Yeah. Oh, and how about Will-o'-the-Wisps being bipedal creatures of the swamp? Mm. A little that, creepy. That- <laughs> They're tricksters that would draw people in, and they rarely tread upon dry ground because it is so heavy for them to move upon dry earth. I've never seen that concept used. Balls of light, yes, but I've never seen it as these fey creatures that are just surrounded by that glowing light. I thought that was kind of cool. Well, and, and on the flip side, there's the lack of magic or a lack of belief in Elfland altogether. When the king reads the rune for Elfland to fade or to be forgotten, and nobody looks to the east anymore. Nobody even admits something might exist there. Anybody who talks about it is looked upon as crazy. Likewise, after the unicorn dies, nobody can agree what it looked like. And after a vote, they end up refusing to believe that it was even there in the first place. Don't you love reality by popular vote? <laughs> Again, current events, yes. <laughs> Man, if we if we were in a plane that was going down and could all just vote that we were no longer falling, that would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, going back to the runes and the magic, I thought it was it was also very fascinating that, like you said, Jen, that it's a very different type of magic that's going on here because once those runes are spoken, that magic is lost, which is it's a completely different concept right. than what we're used to in a you know role playing setting or you know even the kind of the modern telling of that tale. But it, it's it's very makes it very precious, you know, makes it very unique, and I like that aspect of the story. Well, I also like the fact that fate bade the king to swear protection of Lyrazel. So you have the very strong powers of fate as well as the King of Elfland himself. And yet they still have that one rune, the most powerful rune. And if I speak it, it is gone forever. And so I'm going to sock that away and keep it just for the sake of keeping that power and keeping us safe. I thought it was a very interesting point of view to come from the king. Yes, and you can definitely see the roots of the spell, the Fey runic alphabet from DCC. Oh, yeah. Certainly, certainly spring from this with differences. You know, in DCC, they're inscribed in some fashion or other. And of course, they're not lost forever, but they can be incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. You can imbue a rune in DCC with up to eight spells of any level. Can you uh, imagine just uh, triggering eight spells at <laughs> once? That could ruin anybody's day. And that would certainly be a rune of great and horrific power. That'd be a lot of phlogiston. Yeah, and, and, it's, and those rune magic spells, you know, the, either the mortal alphabet or the fey alphabet, really is underutilized or maybe underappreciated, examined by players to a certain extent, because you don't see it played a lot in the games that I've been present in, at least. We had someone try to use that uh, today while we were playtesting the adventure. Oh, okay. A caster had it and rolled a one. 
I, I'm so sad, but I, I really feel that it's a case of, you know, much like Spiderweb, which has different effects at different levels, you just see the name of it and you presume you know what's going to happen. Just like force manipulation, you're not getting the same effect with every result level. And yeah, the classic rope get- work uh, syndrome. <laughs> yes, yes. And players that are newer to DCC as a whole just look at that and presume based on the name of the spell instead of going in, looking at it and saying, oh, wow, this is really powerful. And I kind of want to start using things like this at the table, like the two lightning swords canceling out. Instead of they both inflict damage against the wielder of the other, no, they just canceled out. It was just yeah, two swords against out each other. Yeah, short circuit. I think that'd be kind of neat. Mm-hmm. And going back to the writing style for just a moment, in the last chapter, it's kind of alluded that the story may have come from his grandmother. The way that it was written and the way that more tales could have come from this witch and, oh, how I wish she could have told me more. And it actually got me thinking... It is very akin in the sweeping style to some of the stories that my grandfather used to tell me before bed. Hmm. So at the end of it, I started appreciating the entirety of the story even more. And one of the biggest morals I gathered from all of this is, as the King of Elfland did, freeze those moments of contentment. I was just like, okay, this became poignant for me. Okay, I guess I like the (laughs) book again. But it was written while he sat on a crumpled hat. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it really does come home. <laughs> oh no, it, it just drives it all home. <laughs> you know, I think I think in modern parlance, an author who makes his own quills and writes a single draft stories in longhand while sitting on a hat would be referred to as um, a nutter. But <laughs> but really eccentric. I, yeah, well, if you're very wealthy, you're eccentric. Overall, it's a really neat story and I understand why it is viewed as so influential because its reflections are everywhere and it's just great. The the witchery and even the names of characters. Zerundaril. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great witch's name. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> it's very poetic. We talk about the language, but it's just full of that sort of poetry of language, which is uncommon mixture of, I guess, this high style and the storytelling elements that I really appreciate that we read this work and that it carries or resonates with so much background for these other pieces that we've been reading too. It's a very melancholic work. That weariness is not just present in the magic. It's the weariness of time that weighs on Elflin, the weariness of time that lay, that, you know, different type of weariness for mortals. It's very beautiful, but also very, very sad in some sense, because although it's a quote unquote happy ending, it's an ending which you know, these people are removed from the mortal world, a retreat in a sense, you know, from into this into this haven of Elfland or subsumption. And I think that that feeling of melancholy and weariness, not only does it come through to the reader, it sort of bleeds through to the characters. Mm-hmm. You know, Alverick, when he leaves Elfland, is exhausted, even though for him no time has passed and for everyone else ten years has passed. It's almost like that all caught up with him at once. And so he has that fatigue that never seems to go away. That weariness is everywhere in the story. And and time had idled for centuries within Elfland. And so that melancholy 
carries forward on behalf of the king, whose wife has since passed because the queen was mortal. And so all he has is his daughter. Just the entire feel kind of puts me to mind of Stephen King's Dark Tower when he talks about the world that has passed by. And that's sort of what's happened with Elfland. Time has been frozen. The world has continued around it and has sort of passed it by at this point. And all these men yearning for that magic, which, you know, is a different than what their expectations are when they finally receive it. And then they kind of curse the magic when it comes about. <laughs> yeah, sort of like, we want to be ruled by a magic lord. Whoopsie daisy. Maybe we did. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of? Let me in. Let me in. Let me out. Let me out. <laughs> <laughs> I want this. No, never mind. Take it away. Okay. So the people of Errol are Timon and Pumbaa. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say children, but yes. <laughs> I, I also thought another kind of fascinating aspect that you – I haven't really gotten from many other stories is this idea of, you know, the, the creatures of Elfland are almost as fascinated by the non-magic or, you know, the, the mundane magic, I guess, of the lands that we know, right? They, they are fascinated by the passage of time, by children, by you know, all these aspects of the world that we know. And I, I like that sort of alternate view, you know, saying that there is this type of magic in our own world that if you look at it from Elfland's perspective, it becomes its own special thing. And I thought that was a kind of a fascinating exposure that he goes, you know, that he reiterates throughout the story as well. The fact that the language of man was the language of Elfland. Oh, a long time ago. When right. the troll approaches Orion and he's speaking to him and he goes from the language of trolls to the language of Elfland because that has become the language of man. One other thing that's, that's worth touching on, uh, just from a kind of fascinating sub story that goes on is this contention, but almost a, it's almost not treated with the respect of a lot of, you know, like an, a worthy opponent of religion versus magic or heathenism. And I don't know if this is really true to what Dunsany was historically or biographically felt about religion, but you get this kind of sense that the religion of men is so new and so not even sort of worthy of the attention of sort of these beings in a sense. It's just treated so differently than you you treat this in a three hearts and three lions sort of aspect. I was just I was yeah. just thinking, yeah, that's very different from three hearts and three lions. Well, it's also different in the fact that I liked this one. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, I like that. Daisy. <laughs> there comes the hate mail again. But I really like that aspect because, you know, there's so much echoes of Lyrazel's trying to adapt this world and she just can't really put herself into the effort to do it. And when she tries, she's admonished by Alberic of saying, you cannot worship these stones, you know, for example, in, in place of the real things that these real objects that we really worship, you know, the, the other things that we worship, you know, it, it's, it's kind of this confusing aspect, but it's, it's a commentary, right, in terms of what are we viewing our own idolizations over? What is that real magic that we want to both bring to our lives, but also that spiritualism, right? You know, and, that, and it's just kind of an interesting discussion about that in the context of the book and the context of the story. But it was very interesting that the Freer didn't have a huge objection to marrying Alverick to Lyrazel. The mermaid. <laughs> he just... He just he couldn't just, find a way to do it. He had to find something from the archives, so he dug up this mermaid wedding ceremony so that she could still wed him even though she wasn't bound to this land. Right, even though she also wasn't a mermaid. <laughs> no, well, it, it was the closest thing he could find. I think that was a shot by an Irishman taken at the church. You won't do something <laughs> simple. You won't just marry these two. Oh, no, you have to go to these huge lengths and try and justify things <laughs> and jump through all these... I mean, seriously, just like his love for Parliament shows, uh, his <laughs> love of religion is kind of interesting, I think. 
Wow. Okay, is that the cue to move on to things to stat from here, or do we want to wax philosophical a little bit more? (laughs) That sounds great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Save us! (laughs) (laughs) All right, so things to stat. So one of the things I really took away from this is that there's a scene, several scenes, I guess, where the troll... Uh, what I'll call the Dunsany troll, because I think it's very similar to what Michael Curtis did with Knoll House. You know, you see trolls through a, a new light in this work. They're comedic, they're scampering, they frolic, they tease, you know, they, they tease all these other animals and they, they have this kind of inner network of communication with them. And the troll Lurulu is the one that, you know, becomes a guide to Orion, the son of the king of Alveric and the daughter of the king of Elfland. And it's just a, a really neat take. And I, and it's almost one of those things that I want to take and sort of do the, what I'd say that, like I said, the Michael Curtis treatment to it, because it's, it's so different than the creatures that I envision when I see trolls or even, you know, they refer to in some ways as gnomes as well. Uh, I like that aspect. He he kind of reminds me of the, the little dude yeah. in Labyrinth. I wonder if that was some callback to it. Because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of mischievousness in his approach. Like he goes up to children in the land of Earl and says, come back to me to Elfland. And it's, you know, just the thought of home and food, the only thing that saves that one child. And he just scampers off, you know, after he's <laughs> like, yeah, that's, and, that's part and, of the and job. The just like, but how did, how did that not work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I thought that would be a really neat thing to try to come up with a creature description, but, you know, make it maybe more of a broader sort of paintbrush strokes of, of that creature, you know, a longer sort aspect. Alvaric's sword was another one that I think you could stat up very easily. It's directly inherited in terms of what DCC brings to magic swords and the intelligence, the specialness of those swords in, in DCC. And uh, clearly Alvaric's sword, the way it's made, the way its magic works on against the, the Elfland's creatures and the trees, that's a neat thing. I, I think at some point he describes the sword as communicating joy you know, that's filled with song. And that's just a, a really neat kind of image for a magic sword to have in my mind. Yeah, I love it. The other kind of thing I took away from this was that the search that Alberic does and the companions that he recruits for what I think is like 10 or 12 year hiatus from being a king. Like he basically abdicates, yeah. goes off in search of Elfland and his love. And part of that search is that he encounters these, not necessarily followers, but people who are also touched by Elfland to a certain extent, and but touched in different ways. Uh, they become mad. You know, I think the characters Niv and Zend and Vend, I think are the three characters that kind of come to mind. But just the idea of this quest for it, but almost a tragicness to that quest. How would you apply that in terms of game mechanics to, you know, a party or character? you know, when their questing becomes impossible to a certain extent, you know, they can never reach or attain that goal. What does it do to them? Eventually, all it takes is glimpsing a pretty girl to break that spell and just go settle down with her. Exactly. And and give up the dream. Yeah. It's simple. What about you, Bob? First of all, uh, thinking of the the trolls, I love the imagery of the trolls riding a bunch of hounds while getting ready to go hunt unicorn. Mm Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, like I said earlier, Will-O-Wisps, they're absent from DCC RPG, and Dunsany's take on them is is so unique that I think creating these kind of malevolent trickster creatures, to them it's just sort of a trick to lure someone to their death. And luring them is the gravest of insults, but oh, shiny, it's it trolls. And we play tricks on trolls all the time, so they play tricks on us. So it's kind of this dichotomy of ancient eldritch evil and ADD 
pixie. <laughs> they get really angry for half a sentence, and then they're off to the next thing. And we are so enraged. Oh, but look, it's a troll wearing a funny hat. Well, that's kind of cool. And that kind of creature that could be so deadly one moment and just so carried away the next, I think, is is fun. There's the Guardians of Elfland, the Enchanted Knights, with their thick elfin blood. And that was really cool. The strange metal armor and and imbued with magic by the runes. That was really cool. Certainly worth putting together, like, the the honor guard of Elfland. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and the, and the fact that they were created or revived, I think he revives his oldest champion, the one he, when his magic was youngest, or the, that going back to that yes. concept of weariness of his magic. They were stronger when he was younger. You know, the first one he created was the, the strongest of the four. Zerundral's black stick? Talk about an artifact. I mean, the sheer number of magical properties that thing had. <laughs> sure, they were, they were mostly minor. You know, well, we'll keep away mice and fleas. Oh, but trolls can jump over that barrier but i can do this and there's something to be said for a a magic item that isn't of earth-shaking power but is of earth-shaking usefulness right her magic was a very practical magic it was so neat to see that kind of reflection of she took that away from elfland because i think she was she references you know sort of gaining her knowledge of magic from the king of elfland or encounters with him and to see the apocalyptic application as kind of like a nursemaid or a babysitter you know it's just a really <laughs> really fun well when she's looking at the troll and the troll's like ha i'm from elfland and she's like and? yeah yeah <laughs> what bring it that was really neat also, because the runic alphabet of the King of Elfland differs in some fundamental ways from the DCC spell, I'd almost like to create like a side table for the DCC spell that is available only to elves. And essentially, if they hit that max roll on the spell, then they can choose any number of these particular effects on the subtable, but they can only use each one once. Ooh, that's great. And then they're they're gone. But considering that otherwise it's you know imbue eight spells, the yeah. ability of my my boon companion has been slain. I speak the rune and using power from when magic was still young, I revive him. Mm. But I can do it. I wonder I wonder if you could do something, say not a house rule or something like that, just where you, you give the option to your spellcaster to say, you can take the highest result of the spell, but then you lose that spell forever. You know, something like that, right? Where it's it's almost like a, a way of tapping into magic or that becomes your magic system. That'd be kind of an interesting choice for some players to deal with in some situation. Yeah, that is, that is true. You leave a scroll lying around that gives them that ability or hidden. Lying around's no fun. <laughs> I, I certainly think there's some great potential to build on what already exists in, in DCC, just carrying it a little further in sort of a unique fashion that, that certainly wouldn't be it for everybody and would probably be, and let's face it, normally that's a little more crunch than you would have in a spell, mm-hmm. but I think that... But I, I think rituals are different. I think rituals are a little bit different than spells. They're referred to as uh, interchangeable, but... That is true. Rituals really are... Little bit different and special. I would certainly start up the ritual that was used to create the sword. It's so much more than just that sword magic spell, specifically requiring the thigh bone of a materialist. How's that for <laughs> politics for you? And the thunderbolts from the garden. Similarly, related to that sword, there was the false weight that the witch was able to produce because, of course, he had to remove the magic from that blade. And so she gave him a whetstone with which to do so. And my heart hurt to read that part, man. 
(laughs) (laughs) There was also a scroll to repair all of the things that had been hurt with that magic sword. And that led me to wonder, would that work on people, too, if need be? It's kind of a a healing scroll, but it has to pertain to that specific item. So it's very focused and specific magic, but struck me as very intriguing. Speaking of the witch, you know, there was that hint that she had looked into the king's eyes and just the way that she took the switch in the relationship status so quickly. Alvaric at first approached her because she was the one with all the magic. Hey, make me a sword. My dad, the king, said so. And later it was, oh, mother witch, would you come take care of my child? I trust you. I trust you to protect him with your magic. So I think statting up Zerundarel herself could be pages. <laughs> could. Or, yes, or maybe, maybe she could be a patron even. She would be the most interesting patron because, just think about it. Patron <laughs> right? bond. Okay. Invoke patron. Patron moves in and takes care of your children. <laughs> what a result, yes. right? I had patron twins. leaves in 2d12 years. <laughs> yeah, or patron just shows up and lives in the background in your home, essentially unnoticed as the patron by you, but noticed by any supernatural entity as, oh, wait a minute, hang on, what? Oh, <laughs> no. But <laughs> but disregarded by, well, trolls. Uh. <laughs> well, even the trolls, they kind of played around, but they didn't really push her buttons. Yeah. Right. They do better. Oh, but, and she, but she's such a rich character because, like you said, she has that whole element of maybe she's the storyteller, right? Narratively, she's she's very much part of that story. But didn't I, th- remember, I thought I remembered like an aspect of like her, her early introduction to Alberic is that she has a guise uh, that when she drops the guise and be, appears to him as an old woman, the relationship is sort of born because he doesn't flinch away from seeing her in her true form. If I remember that correctly, just based on the introduction, or is that am I misremembering that? I'll go with it. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> but that that hint that she had dealt with the king before and that she'd looked into his eyes actually made me wonder for a minute, whoa, could she be Larizel's mom? But as far as the king knows, she's, yeah, the queen was mortal and the concerned elves had buried her. So I'm thinking, well, let's still not discount this. You never know. One of the things I thought was really interesting were the hounds of Earl. And Dunsany goes into the known fact that dogs are the most powerful judges of character. And so it makes them especially good at hunting, although I'm not quite sure what Dunsany had against unicorns. Uh, <laughs> but that just seemed a little interesting. He also went into the trees having such speed, and there must have been a rune used to control them. And Alvaric was wondering how long ago they had been created, and if he hurt them, did he hurt the controller? So little little things like that, really good magic bits to chew on, I thought. So, continuing on with the theme of runes, we could go to some props and audio suggestions. So, just a quick kickoff then. Symbolism. Throw the horn and the bow out there from Orion. Uh, Or even more simply, have players name their characters based on what they see in a map of the night sky. After all, it's how Orion gets his name, right? I really like the idea of a blank grimoire with symbols in the pages toward the end that, when studied, tell a prophecy, or possibly the end of someone's story. I think that's a really good way to do something along the lines of augury or second sight for clerics as well. There's a strand of grass 
tied around the troll's finger, which is a ritual to stop charms that affect the passage of time. I think that is absolutely brilliant and should be built into anybody's repertoire if they have the King of Elfland as a patron. And speaking of, there is a song by the title, King of Elfland's Daughter. Again, you hear Heather Alexander pop up in my list a lot. This thing was going through my head from day one of reading this book. (laughs) (laughs) That and another one she has called The Hunt is On, which is very, very perfect for the son and all of his hound activities. And I gotta say, there's a group called Bard Mageddon that also has a very nice tone to accompany this. Yeah, they do a lot of great traditional folk music. So, Mark, I see we're not too far off here in our musical choices. No, we're not. It's, uh, I mean, there's a. It's kind of a nice change, right? (laughs) I think one of the, in kind of doing research for this, is I found The King of Elfland's Daughter, the album by former Steel Eyed Span members. And it's really period, very evocative. I, it was it was really lovely to see that there was an actual concept album put together based around the book. And the best thing was that you can hear Christopher Lee's voice as the narrator and the King of oh. Elfland. Oh. So definitely Love worth it. checking out, you know, in terms of... Now I will always picture the King of Elfland as Christopher yeah. Lee. And that's not a bad thing, but it makes him even scarier. <laughs> <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> I think it, uh, other things you could do, because time is so important in how it's played with in Elfland, you know, in the concept of its, its the kind of classic concepts of time spanning ages in Elfland, ages of men, I guess is, is kind of, I'll put it, and how that weariness sort of senses in there. I think one of the things that you could do to bring that to your table is maybe something simple, like don't have people bring any, any type of timekeeping device. Make, you know, when you're playing in that environment of, you know, sort of a, a mystical or fey realm, don't let them rely on, you know, sort of what they know. Make them sort of get tuned into the sense of the story more by saying, hey, this session, you know, let's take down the clocks, take down the wristwatches or whatever. Just something simple like that so that, you know, people are a little bit more aware that time has a, a slightly different meaning. Black out your windows. Black out your windows. You could also play with that in-game a little bit by just screwing with uh, spell durations. Yes. You know, okay, I, I cast the spell and it lasts, you know, for three rounds and three turns later it fades. Yes. Or you know, any, you're know, speeding up and slowing things down in game as well. Really, just hit them both in uh, in reality and at and in character. Yeah, and I thought you could also be sort of trollish, Dunsany trollish, and be a little bit playful. <laughs> you know, take an opportunity to like maybe set your clocks like to a different time or like speed them up, <laughs> and and you just sort of like a little quirky stuff like that. You know, which would be that it's sort of a a different aspect. But I, I really like that. How could you play with time some more, both in-game and out-of-game? And like Bob said, I think there's a lot of opportunities for how you could approach that in-game. You know, potentially, you know, you don't necessarily want that spell effect going on that long. A feather fall that, you know, keeps going and you don't ever <laughs> hit the ground. And what does that do to your character, for example? Wow. Or the party. Or the party. <laughs> the objects of the fear, I thought were just so ripe for material visualization aids the candlestick the bell to have a interaction with a religion or clerical figure and some way of introducing them such that the players have a choice to make are they taking a certain path by grasping a certain object or representation of this religion that's being presented to them in game or they you know is that something you can probably build into an adventure too just to say these are the objects of this religion they protect you against 
maybe create little islands like they did for the freer at the end of the story you know he he was hmm. like one island that was left because his bell was able to ring out an area around his house and he lived in sort of contentment for the rest of his life his long life i think it's implied but that was kind of an, an interesting aspect of maybe there's a chance for players if they grasp certain objects to overcome fairy magic or or negligent magic you know that might be uh, might change them in some way and it'd be and, to, and you can even work that in with the other items like the horn and the bow. Mm-hmm. And which direction do things end up going for each character? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> I'm going to play at your table. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Bob? Well, right off the bat, you know, building on what Jen mentioned with the grass wrapped around the finger, this story is really rooted in old myth. These are not the trolls of Three Hearts and Three Lions. These are not the creatures that we've come to know through D&D, where, where kobolds are, are evil little things. It goes back to leprechauns would be cobblers. It taps into kind of that old mythology. And so I think that stones with holes worn through them, so you can look through and see the fae and look through their enchantments. You know, holy nice. holy water and crushed four-leaf clovers and crushed, crushed shamrocks to anoint one's eyes to provide proof against illusion. All of those old remedies to ward off creatures of the fae would be perfect to bring to the table if you wanted to build up off of this just because there's there's so much great stuff here and you could just expand working off of what bark was talking about really any steel eye span music is fitting as music of the period because it's the traditional folk music of england and certainly fits the story Hmm. and then for the dreamlike timeless quality of Elfland, I would use some of the kind of flowing music of Enya, Caribbean Blue, the Celts, may it be, that kind of unanchored, wavering waves of music that have but don't have tempo. To me, that sort of evokes that weird rippling time that is timeless of Elfland. Mm. Nice. So, yeah. Okay. so we've touched on a few things that are already canon in the book what else off the top of your head would you put in your column for the existing things out there for dcc that you could reskin for this well the the treatment of of sword magic she knew what she needed because she knew what she was making and and the lengths they went to 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 get those items it reminded me of the steps taken in the making of the ghost ring Mm mm-hmm Oh, I am making this ring. I need these specific things to power it. And nice. And so you could really easily reskin the making of the ghost ring to be the making of the lightning sword and just change the items and the encounters a little bit with a little bit of reskinning. You're good to go. I think as an adventure itself, that adventure just kind of stands stands apart from others in the DCC line because of everything it presents. And it goes into depth for something that is normally sort of taken for granted in fantasy games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm making a magic item, I roll on these charts, and I go. And that really shows the mechanics. So it's a great adventure to begin with, but very fitting for reskinning. Or using as a blueprint for, you know, how yeah. you would how you would do this in the in the same line. So yeah, I, Michael Curtis created something great with the making of the ghost ring. Mm-hmm. Just not not that he puts out 
anything that really isn't great, but uh, <laughs> lip service. And then, <laughs> and then there was the ivy in the woods surrounding Elfland as oh, yeah. as it came mm-hmm. you know, from between the trees and it was charging at him and stretching until it was cut back. That reminded me of a, a more ambulatory and dangerous version of the vine horrors in Sailors on the Starless Sea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, just, yeah. You could take characters that went through the funnel, Sailors on the Starless Sea, get them to like third level, reskin sailors so they don't even know, because rather than going down, they go up into a tower and give those vine whores the ability to chase them down through the woods <laughs> and pull trees to close you in. Done. And, and <laughs> that, is, yeah. that was such scary imagery as he's running and he's, he's using his sword to hold things at bay. And then all of a sudden the trees are pursuing and they're closing him off and he's having to use magic to ward them away that was some real tension and the imagery for it when you really think about it it again it's that dreamlike quality of elfland given nightmarish form Mm -hmm. you're running but you're not getting anywhere because you're running from the trees but the trees are keeping up with you and i like the idea of bringing that sort of mood to any adventure and to the table right i I think yeah just to follow up with that it's so i guess the kind of the canon or the the general approach of elfland is that there's beauty, there's so much beauty everywhere. And it's a, this sort of idealized place, you know, compared to our, our lands, but it's really that undercurrent of horror in a sense, you know, you, you could, you could say, because it coming. It's like the poisoned garden in England yeah. where there's this beautiful garden, but every plant in it will kill you. Right. And, <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's very much the mood of the King of Elfland, you know, that's pervasive because of that loss, because of the fear of losing his daughter. There was one description, I think of the daughter when, Alvaric Caesar, and he he thinks that she's wearing this beautiful crown, but it's actually a crown of ice. You know, this this kind of very interesting sort of twists that make you you know sort of shudder a little, like you said, what it can be to a mortal man who dares uh, enter that realm. Oh yeah, and things don't have to be greatly different. It can be small differences. It yeah. can be going outside and looking up into a clear blue sky, but the sun is green. Mm-hmm. There's just that oddness. Things are just off yeah 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 and i think one of the things that kind of obviously maybe think of dcc modules are the fairy tales from unlit shores um by daniel bishop from definitely purple duck games there's a kind of similar creature in prince charming reanimator that the players encounter a rose dragon that has that same sort of horrific beauty to it the trees and the vines i was thinking the same thing and so I, I like that that kind of scenery. But the, but basically what Daniel Bishop created with that series, and I think there's three of them out there now, the Prince Charming, the, the second one, the Creeping Beauties of the Woods, as well as the, the third one, the Portsmouth Mermaid. You know, he's got really just the leakage of fairy magic into mortal realm is the aspect that you take away from a lot of that, especially with the Creeping Beauties of the Woods, where the, the entire woods is permeated with the goblin market with, you know, these creatures that are sort of the twisted versions of the fairy tales. And you could easily take that wood setting and make it something akin to Elfland, right? In a sense that you're you're making it beautiful, but also with that undercurrent otherworldliness. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of other ones that we'll get into this a little bit more, but that Harley Stroh wrote for the fourth edition of DCC modules that they printed out, Dagoria's Dungeon and The Curse of Kingspire. Also both kind of heavily influenced by fey magic or fairy magic in the sense of you know, these ancestors to the elves, the kindred or the kith, I think, are, are kind of what he refers to them as. These originations of both elf and men 
you know, it's kind of a, like you get a sense of that from the, the lineage that's described in the, the, the story we read. Um, so both of those, I think you can make a, a version of those that are each of them bringing in parts of the king's courts or parts of, you know, the, the men of Earl and how they are interacting with those lineages that go back. So I think both of those are things that definitely worth looking at that may not get a lot of attention, both because they don't have the similar cover. They don't have the Doug Kovacs cover, you know, but they're also fourth edition. Well, hey, so was... Uh... Tower of the Black Pearl, right? Uh, it was a rewrite from one of the old ones. It's true, I think. So yeah, it's, I think the same vein, you know, this is a, a great set of Harley Stroh adventures that definitely within the theme of what we've been reading. What about you, Jen? I was definitely inspired by the garden blooming when Lyrazel returns, which really put me in mind of those fairy tales from Unlit Shores. Of course, sailors, Bob already touched on that. The most obvious, of course, being the King of Elfland, the patron in the <laughs> core book. But I, I felt really strong ties to Beyond the Black Gate. It deals with the Horned King and the Great Hunt, the Celtic legends of the hunting hounds and... You know, you hear the horn and the distant mists before anything appears, and those chapters of Orion with his hounds during their long hunts just really, yeah, this is this is totally the Horned King right here. Down to the witches, really. <laughs> <laughs> the other one that really struck me was Theater of the Hammed. That one's by uh, Clint Bahati from... Mm -hmm. Order of the Quill Publishing, and the fantastical feel of the entire thing. Some of it is what you expect, and the entire feel of it just really drives home the high fantasy that you're looking for and the good time fantasy that you're looking for without being terribly dark. Since you mentioned Tower of the Black Pearl, it's worth noting that Curse of Kingspire, Dragora's Dungeon, Tower of the Black Pearl were all converted DC's RPG by Daniel Bishop. <laughs> He's kind of the conversion guy. Yeah, I sense some sort of um, coalescence of theme in this in this topic he did now. The Well of the Worm too. I think he's done a lot of conversions. Hey Jen, tell us about tell us about another. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a conversion, believe it or not. Oh, that's right. But it's our DCC feature for this show is Through the Dragon Wall by Daniel J. Bishop, released by Goodman Games. Number 92, for anyone who's curious, it is one of four DCC modules that does not have a Doug Kovacs cover, so it's kind of sticking out on the shelves there. What's the fourth? Well of the Worm. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, do you want to read us the blurb, Bob? Sure. Embroiled in a curse from the dawn of history, you have become pawns in a cosmic struggle between the King of Elfland and the ancient dragon god, Bafotet Kor. Will you stand with the last empress? Will you face the dreaded bone dragon, or will your bones lie bleached beneath an unchanging sky? This adventure is a test of player skill that will push characters to the edge and beyond through the dragon wall. That's some good elevator text right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Mark, like you said, it does complete the trilogy from Dragora's Dungeon and the Curse of the Kingspire, which are both pretty meaty. And those were originally released as the Master Dungeon series. So if anyone okay. is familiar with the old line, uh, we're now looking at numbers 82.5 and 88.5. Uh, despite them being in the point fives of the series, they are not digest size. This one's level three to follow up with the others in the trilogy. And this one, it's got a really good fantasy feel to it. 
it almost has a Romeo and Juliet feel. Mm -hmm. Because you've got the favorite empress of the King of Elfland capturing a high priest of an enemy god. Neither will follow the wishes of their deity or leader, so they get put in timeout and separated by a wall. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in DCC terms, that's deity disapproval that's really mild. (laughs) Uh, No, you you cannot go through this wall as opposed to spend the next four days without any powers and doing this and this. (laughs) But, you know, in the meantime, we're going to kill all your friends, too. So there's an upside, right? Uh, (laughs) Kill all your friends. That's sort of like par for the court. (laughs) I think it'd be really easy to place this particular module into the storyline of the King of Elfland's daughter, or even have it as a sequel. And to start the adventure, it even leaves it kind of open, because you can either bring your party through in a nice linear storyline, or are they lured in somehow? Is there an agent of chaos? Do they see past the veil, past the mist in the mountains to the east? Do they see the the green land or the black land? Or does the wall itself start somewhere else and they find themselves on top of it, looking down into one of the other lands? It's nice and open to take your, your fantasy into this setting. Well, I'm building on the idea of placing this into the storyline of the King of Elfland's daughter. She she wanted to return. She was missing her husband and her son. And who's to say that the first step before the King of Elfland said, "Okay, fine, we'll just uh, we'll use imminent domain on on the kingdom of Elfland. <laughs> uh, who's to say that before that he was just like, "No, you you could place this mid story in the King of Elfland's daughter." What True, happened? This could before- be her, his daughter instead of just an empress of. Yeah, well, it, it, yeah. it's it's you know the story and the adventure are both very very evocative and uh, well and once again Daniel J Bishop <laughs> does his appendix and homework we've always stressed <laughs> this and and it certainly once again it shows the the pleasure of reading the King of Elfland's Daughter is that I got a chance to dive more into these three excellent adventures. And I, I really think that there's an, there you op- go. an opportunity for Goodman Games to come out with, you know, these are these are kind of loosely tied together. They don't, you don't have to necessarily, they're independent, that you can run them separately. But you could create, you know, a very thematic, they, there's a lot of repeat characters that they're, they're inherited from one to the other. I'd love to see this get some sort of special treatment beyond, you know, I think was truly is maybe a turnoff for some people to cover difference, which people look at that and think, Oh, it's 4E or oh, it's, you know, third edition because of that style of artwork. Because it doesn't have the Kovacs aesthetic. Doesn't have the Kovacs aesthetic. And it also has a kind of a, a very different fantasy aesthetic, you know, in terms of how it yes. portrays the cover it's art. It's a slantly cod chick on the front. Yeah. Yes. And, it's, and, it's, and, it, and it's one of those things that's, you know, that could be a turnoff for a lot of people when they look at that. And from a DCC, like you said, Kovacs sort of viewpoint, I'd really like to see this be highlighted in a certain, in a, in a way, in, 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 because they, there is so much richness, richness here. And, and like I said, that really one thing that I appreciated from reading the story was the fact that it led to highlighting these, not just, uh, the one we're featuring, you know, uh, Daniel Bishops, which is a, a great adventure written specifically for DCC, but the work that Harley Stroh did for the Master Dungeon series, which are now converted to DCC. And, you know, I'd love to see, more of that brought, uh, more of that high fantasy, you know, brought into the DCC uh, role-playing world. So, if I'm reading Mark correctly, what you're saying is alternate covers. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I would definitely, as part of that retreatment, is say let's do some 
some alternate covers and you know, maybe bundle them, so, you know, together in some way. Even just sketch covers. Even just yeah. sketch covers, yeah. Something that would reintroduce them and refresh them, you know, to people. Because I think the way they were introduced is sort of, what is a 82.5? You know, what does that mean? And, oh, this is just you know, an attempt to bring forward some 4E material into DCC. I think that there's a lot, of, a lot more richness that could be, you know, achieved, um, you know, n- now that all three are together. You know, I, I Maybe think- by issue a compilation. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think the timing of the release hurt it as well. If these three had been released today, they probably would have received a, a much bigger reception than they did earlier in the DCC RPG timeline. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and to be fair, the point fives were always used for just the, this isn't brand new, huge, open to the public stuff, because a lot of the road crew modules that were specifically sent in PDF form to us back in 2013 didn't see print until 2015 Mm -hmm. and they were issued as 0.5s with black and white covers right but they're still getting more attention than the non-covax covers and as i recall they got published into chaos rising which has a full number as opposed to a 0.5 i believe Um, I just have one little note because there is a creature in this adventure that I totally and thoroughly enjoyed when I first went through this book. And then we read The King of Elfland's Daughter. And that thing that you mentioned about the witch dropping her guys, Mark, Mm -hmm. when the PCs finally interact with this creature, they have a chance to make strong allies if only they can get past the appearances. Right, right. That's like... Oh, yeah. Okay. That, yeah. <laughs> that kind of solidifies it. I, yeah. Okay. I'll do this. <laughs> and, you know, I've got my group clamoring to play more. If I'm really pressed for time, I can just scale things up and start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because even then, the treasure's not going to be overwhelming and there'll be new players. So, mm-hmm. huh. Mmm, food for thoughts. <laughs> okay, but, so... But definitely worth checking out for anybody who hasn't, you know, who's been either turned off by the cover or just has not felt the need to go, you know, check out something that's a little bit more high fantasy. And you know what, guys? They all look the same in PDF. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was that a good enough soundbite? <laughs> you know, every module looks the same when the lights are on. <laughs> Uh. (laughs) pretty much it yeah (laughs) so speaking of taking this game out on the road i think it might be time to hand it over to our road crew shout outs perchance sounds good hey bob we are the keepers of mysteries so who are the guardians of secrets you can be keep listening details are coming soon for our friends of the library program people are already asking get your place in line Again, soon, soon. <laughs> hey, Daniel, you can stop emailing us. We got it. <laughs> uh, M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Join the Appendix N Book Club of New York at Mia's Bakery on August 5th for their discussion of Michael Moorcock's The Stealer of Souls. Find Judge Jeff Goad for more info or simply be at Mia's Bakery on August 5th at noon and tune in to Jeff's new project, the non-gaming Appendix N Book Club podcast. Judge Jeff Goad is also running DCC regularly at the Brooklyn Strategist every other Sunday 
the next game being August 6th. And Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at Games Plus in Mount Prospect, Illinois. You can check with the store for more details or keep an eye out on the DCC communities where he posts about it regularly. And friend of the show and guardian of secrets, Troy Tucker continues to run DCC at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida on alternating Saturdays. Check with the store or just find Troy Tucker on G Plus or Facebook for more information. Friend of the show, Bruce Cunnington, is trying to drum up local interest for DCC at his friendly local game store. He will be hosting a game on August 17th at Weekend Warlords in Lobro, Leicester, England. Leicester, Lister. Yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Lister would be if he was if he was from Boston. <laughs> Very be true. Lister. Yeah, I blame Brendan LaSalle. Uh, William Craig will be running his first public game on August 6th, beginning at noon, at the friendly local gaming store, Game of Nights. That's Nights with a K in Newark, Delaware. And just recently, Drinking in Dragon 6, a mini convention put on by Joy Royale in New London, Connecticut, was another smashing hit this past month. With DCC's Brendan LaSalle, Tim DeShane, and Jeff Goad also in attendance and running events. And it's turned out to be a quarterly event, so look for it this fall. And if you haven't seen it, look up the Brendan LaSalle action figure. It's worth it. Awesome. (laughs) That is such an awesome gift. Our next episode is our first film-based podcast. The Raven. Some great old school details originate right there. So listen to that coming up. Do you want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine? We would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your appendix and reading. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions. We've got zines, modules, some great appendix N. Are you running road crew games? Drop us a line. Let us know. You can submit your events or creations to us at the Hub at sanctum.media, or find us on the regular social media sites, Facebook, Google+. We are still not on Ello. <laughs> In the meantime, if you feel so inclined, drop us an email, help us out by posting a review on iTunes, visit us on Google+, light the watch fires, but not in your living room, <laughs> and keep an eye out for our future topics. We'll include your material in the show companion. Any last words? Actually, I I have to say that one of my favorite parts of doing any of the editing for this is that I get to investigate and dig into these modules 112%, if not further. And uh, this was one of the earlier ones I did, and it still stuck with me. So now that I've finally read the book, I'm (laughs) I'm extremely happy to have done so. And for the poignancy I mentioned earlier... Yeah, this has just really been one of those totally worth it months. So thank you to our listeners for, you know, providing the fires under our butts to make us do this every month. What about you, Mark? I had to echo what Jen said is that I really appreciate the opportunity to read this because it was one of those works that I don't think I would have tackled on my own if I hadn't been inspired by the podcast and the you know delving into the history. And Jen, I am so glad you suggested it. Uh, it <laughs> And it, I'm so glad you're not like roasting me over the coals for it. <laughs> no, it's I, I found it like like I said, it, there's a lot of beauty in in the language. There's a lot of sorrow, but you find so much richness in that in the way that story is told and and how it can be applied to a gaming mood or gaming environments. And definitely worth checking out for our listeners. Well, I will third those statements. I, it's this was a real delight. If this is a book that had it not been for Dungeons and Dragons, had it not been for the creation of Appendix N, I probably never would have come across. And it's a book that was 
released and then mostly forgotten until it was re-released in the 60s. So it's one of those things where influential or not, it was kind of lost for a good amount of time, and I would have missed it. I I certainly you know, would not have picked it up, and uh, and that would have been a real shame. And so. now I actually want to read more of his works, mm-hmm. believe it or not. But I'm going to spread them out a little bit. Because <laughs> the- I can do it independently. I'm a big girl. <laughs> I like Lovecraft, but the verbosity of Dunsany <laughs> is just wow. Uh, if there was Regardless, more horror in there, you'd read it. Is that what you're saying? Duh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, folks, thanks for listening. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum podcast. Join us again next time as the Keepers of Mysteries delve into the AV room for The Raven. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2017.